listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey, listeners. I hope that wherever you're listening from today, you're safe, healthy, supplied, and supported. While not all of the episodes we'll be releasing in the next few weeks and months will be specifically about grieving in the time of this coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, in many of them, the guests and I will check in about what this crisis is bringing up around past, present, and future grief. There will also be some that aren't directly related to the crisis, so if you're needing a break from hearing or thinking about it, we'll have some content for that as well. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, March 24th a time when many cities and states across the U.S. were early into orders to shelter in place or stay home and stay safe. This means grieving families were, and still, are adjusting to a lot of changes in terms of school, work, and daily life. Each time I talk to a guest or talk to another podcast host about it, I'm struck by how many parallels there are between this uncertain time and the grief we get hit with when someone dies or is diagnosed with a serious illness. There's fear, confusion, difficulty sleeping, exhaustion, irritability, feeling pressure to get it right, wanting to know what to do, and and longing for what life used to be like. So since there's grief happening everywhere on many levels, just a quick reminder that the Dougie Center is here. We have new resources specifically for families needing ideas on helping their children and teens during this time, and you can find this on our website dougy.org or by following us on social media. You can also always call or email us. And by always, I mean during regular business hours on the West Coast. Today, we're delving into what it means to be a widowed parent and specifically a widowed dad. Dr. Justin Yap is a clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's also part of the Widowed Parent Project. Dr. Yop and his colleague piloted a support group for widowed dads in the hopes of helping them find community and connection. What started as a short-term experiment has grown into a decade-long ongoing support group. Before we get into the episode, it feels really important to note that throughout our conversation, you'll hear the terms widowed dad and widowed mom, but there are widowed parents and caregivers out there who don't use those words to describe themselves, whether because they are non-binary, gender fluid, or in a different role, such as a foster parent, grandparent, or other relation. There might also be listeners who don't identify with the term widow, but are grieving the death of a partner. I'm hopeful that the information in this conversation will be helpful and applicable to anyone who has experienced the death of a partner and is faced with raising children as a solo caregiver. Justin, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. Absolutely. I really appreciate the invite. I'm uh, been a, a long time admirer of what, of what you guys do at the Dougie Center, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be on. 
Well, and it's fun for me to talk to somebody who's in North Carolina while I'm here in Portland, Oregon, since I did spend four years uh, in college in North Carolina. So it's nice to hear the accent again. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. I, I kind of think of myself as as being as not having a strong accent, maybe compared to some people I work with. But then whenever I I, I go somewhere else or speak with someone uh, who's not from the South, I'm, I'm reminded that I, in fact, do have an accent. <laughs> so listeners, as I've been doing with recordings recently, I'm putting a little bit of a date stamp on it. And we're recording today on Tuesday, March 24th in 2020. And we are a few weeks into the COVID-19 coronavirus global health crisis kind of making its way uh, into the United States. So I've been asking a lot of our guests just, you know, what's coming up for them and their grief around this, what's coming up for the people they're working with. So that's where we're going to start today, just so you know where we're recording in case everything's changed wildly by the time this episode makes it to your ears. So Justin, what are you hearing from the dads that you work with and other grieving people you work with? Like, What's it stirring up for them and their grief? Yeah, that's a, a good question and obviously a very timely one. So, you know, we have our support groups that we have that we work with that we have for widowed fathers and widowed mothers. And I, we were supposed to have one with the widowed fathers a few nights ago. And I um, sent out the email to all the guys just saying, you know, I'm sure you guys could imagine this, but just to let you know, we're going to have to postpone our in-person meeting due to, due to the coronavirus concerns and um, we're working toward setting up something virtually. Of course, everyone understood. And it set off an interesting email train between the guys back and forth about some of what they're going through. And I I think like a lot of uh, single parents, being the only, you know, the only person who's managing kids who are now not at school and had stuck at home all day and having to you know, kind of manage everything around the house, it's been a lot. But what these guys have really shared with each other is this whole culture now of worrying about sickness and illness has, especially for those children who lost their moms uh, or dads to uh, to a cancer or some other kind of illness, it's really sparked some underlying concerns. And um, one of the fathers in our group said that his son, who's I think around nine or ten, just seemed a little bit off and he checked in with him and said, you know, his son really didn't get the difference between cancer and coronavirus. And it was all just kind of mixed up. And that really hadn't, hadn't dawned on the father that much, but after bringing it up with the son and talking about it, it became clear that he was, his son was experiencing this coronavirus scare in a different way. And it felt more threatening to him because he knew that his mom had died from some, mysterious illness that you couldn't really see and you didn't you know didn't know how you got it and that this kind of had some of the had some echoes of that and so it that led to all the other guys saying you know what I should check in with my kid and so the the men have been sharing how they've been increasingly mindful of checking in with their kids having honest conversations about what they're hearing in the news and what they're hearing from others and either linking or really demystifying or unlinking any concerns that have uh, with what happened to their parent who died and what may happen to their surviving parent now. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective of these kids who have had someone in their life die specifically of an illness, one that you may not, I mean, you can see over time that someone has the illness, but it's not a danger that you can see coming right. that they they have more experience and they may need additional support 
and help disentangling what is coronavirus? What is cancer? What does this mean? Am I more at risk? Is my family more at risk? Because we've had, we already know somebody can die of an illness. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. And, you know, the father said, you know, never really, that association was never the forefront of his mind. Obviously, coronavirus and cancer are two very different things. But in his son's mind, and his son was, I think, six when his mom died. So at that point, he even understood less about cancer. It was just an illness. You know, we talk a lot with the dads about and the moms whose children did have a parent pass away from cancer or some other health problem. You know, it's a different shade between when you have a, a cold or an illness or the flu, that that's not the same as cancer or that's not the same as the type of illness that killed their parent. But it really hadn't dawned on these guys that this is maybe what their kids are thinking. But even though they're not having able to meet together in their support group, they're certainly still supporting each other through the email train. Yeah, so they're still finding some way to to get that connection. And, you know, for, you know, we jumped right into like, what's happening right now. But to back up a little bit, these dads have come together because of a program that you and your colleague piloted to create a support group really specifically for widowed dads. And, and, and from what I've read when I listened to you on other shows, it's like you and your colleague were like, okay, we're gonna do this for six weeks. And we're going to do some educational stuff and then we're going to give them some time to talk and we'll just see how it goes. So I'd love to hear like, how did your expectations about what was going to be a helpful support group specifically for widowed dads change over time? And, and what were some of the things that came out of that, that the dads were sharing? Like, this is what we really need. Yeah. I think the best thing we've done is realize our uh, very real limitations in understanding what these men go through, what these women go through, and really learning from them. So when uh, my colleague Don Rosenstein and I started this, uh, it's been about 10 years ago now. Uh, like you said, we went into it. We, we had a plan. It was going to last six sessions uh, with these men, and we were going to spend half the time giving kind of a didactic presentation and then half the time have given the chance for the men to to speak and, and talk with each other. By the end of that first night, <laughs> we had uh, completely scrapped any plan that we had going into it. Uh, we it was it was apparent from the get-go that that these men had more to offer each other than we had to offer them. The real power of this group was going to be in them supporting each other with Don and I augmenting that some, but the, the, the real meat was going to be the interactions and the support uh, between these men. And then one of the guys asked us that first night, he said, well, you know, if this, if this works, why, why would you limit it to six sessions? And neither Don or I had any answer for that question. It was just what we had decided um, beforehand. So we said, you know what, we don't have an answer for that question. So let's just keep it open-ended. That first group of men ended up meeting for nearly four years. And uh, along the way, they they taught Don and I immeasurably more than, than Don or I taught them. The real power and the real gift of supporting one another and receiving that support from one another was, and and the men would, would tell you this, was invaluable to their to their healing and their coping and their eventually moving forward with their lives and helping their kids move forward. So we, and we continue, we're doing this for 10 years and we still take notes during these group sessions and we, we still debrief afterwards and think, you know what, we hadn't thought of that yet. Um, and after 10 years, we kind of feel like we've, we've heard most of the themes, but every now and then we're, we're still surprised. So the, 
the the men and the women in the support groups are still our greatest teachers. And and speaking of ten years of listening to these stories, is there a particular one that's been sticking with you lately or standing out? There there are so many, and in in my uh, in my day job, I work at I'm a psychologist at the cancer hospital at University of North Carolina, and so I work mostly with. Uh, people who have cancer, and of course, a lot of that is worry about dying. Having worked with these men and having having heard their stories, I actually end up talking to parents with advanced cancer and their partners or spouses about some of the stories that I hear from these men. I don't do that with every patient because not everyone can hear that, but I often share stories of men telling me conversations that they did or didn't have with their wives or partners that they wish they would have had with their wives and partners things that they wish they would have had their wives or partners do with their kids or leave for their kids things that can cement those continued bonds and in an interesting way my work with widowed parents completely informs and enhances my work with people who have terminal cancer you know we have one father who well, it was one night in group where one, um, the men were, some of the men were starting to date again. And one of the fathers said that it was, you know, he, his wife was clear and very forward about her wanting him to date again. And that she wanted him to find someone for himself, find someone for the kids that just because she was going to die did not mean he was going to die. He, she was explicit about giving that permission and encouragement. And at the time he didn't want to hear, right? That's not, he didn't want to talk like that. That's not where he wanted to go. But a year or so later, he was, he, he really benefited from having that talk. And when he reentered the dating world, which was, <laughs> which was not an easy step for him or any of the others, having that explicit permission was key to him. And in that same session, one of the other fathers said, you know, I never had that conversation with my wife and she died of cancer as well. And we had months and months and months where we knew what was going to happen. And we never had that conversation. And I think she would want me to date again. And I think she would encourage that, but I really don't know. For that gentleman, not having that explicit conversation, explicit permission ahead of time, was an extra obstacle to dating again when there was already so many obstacles to begin with. And so that's just one of many, many stories that I'll share with couples in which one of the parents has advanced cancer. And I think having done that and having shared stories from people who have lived it has, in some of my patients at least, spurred them to have conversations that they wouldn't have otherwise had that are healthy ones to have, and especially for the surviving parents are very beneficial to have had those conversations. And that's just one of, gosh, I, I could, I could, I could fill up 10 podcasts <laughs> with stories from these guys, but uh, I don't think your listeners are that interested in this topic. <laughs> well, they might be, but time-wise, we might not be able to oh, fit right, that many right. more. And as you're talking, I'm realizing you have a really unique vantage point in that you do individual work family work, and then this peer support work, what would you say is different about creating a peer support group for widow dads versus working with them perhaps individually or working with the family? I know you spoke to that a little bit, but just wondering if there's some other differences you might 
notice? Yeah, and so I think, you know, for the for the individual work I do, sometimes it is grief counseling. Um, and a lot of times it's, it is therapy to address, you know, clinical depression or um, anxiety in some way that's manifesting in panic attacks or really debilitating someone's life. And I think that kind of work is is well suited for individual. What I can never offer in those individual sessions is a lived perspective or a hard-earned wisdom that a, a support group does offer. You know, I, I think it's it's easy to think about the benefits that people receive from being in a support group, but what we see time and time again is that it's really helpful for these guys to offer support to each other. You, you know, it's not uncommon for these men to feel, and women, but I'm thinking especially the men now, to feel like that there's so much on the receiving end of help in the weeks and months and for a long time after their uh, loved ones died. You know, whether it's receiving help with the kids or whether it's receiving casseroles for dinner or receiving people, you know, telling you you'll be okay and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But to be able to then help someone else and to be able to give instead of just receive, I think especially for men is really powerful and really something that they don't have in an in, in abundance of opportunities to do so or to do that. So I think it feels good to help someone else whose pain you can understand. I think that lines up really well too with what we're seeing, or at least what I'm seeing and noticing in our kind of collective response to the pandemic that's happening right now, and that so many people are cut off from the ways that they are used to contributing. So maybe they're not able to go to their job, or they've been laid off, or they aren't able to go to the office and support coworkers in the same way. And so we see we're seeing a lot of rise of mutual aid opportunities, either virtually or organizing drives for people to drop off supplies for uh, folks who maybe are too at high risk to go out into the world. And so I I appreciate you sharing that because I think about what's happening now is some people feel so unable to do that. And it's so frustrating and painful. And to think for these dads who show up and these moms who come to move into that place of, I've been on the receiving end of support for so long. And now look, there's something I can do to make a contribution again. It, it's that, and I think the the what it gets down to is that it it it's meaningful, right? It's meaningful to help others. It's meaningful to use your experiences to 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 benefit you know people who you've connected with. It's meaningful to feel like you're like example you offered that you're helping you know your society through a, a crisis that we're, our country and our world's going through. Um, you know, it's, it's more than that. It just feels good, or that's nice to do. But I, I think it's, um, you know, when we do, when we engage in meaningful activities, we usually feel better about ourselves and feel better about our contributions to others in society. And I think, you know, what what I described and what you just described are two microcosms of that. You have a TED talk, and you and your colleague wrote a book. Uh, called The Group: Seven Widowed Fathers Reimagine Life. And in both of those, you describe this really poignant concept of how so many of the fathers, or maybe I shouldn't say so many, some of the fathers really felt like the wrong parent died. Like their kids would just be so much better off if they had died and their other parent was the one that was still alive. And 
can you talk a little bit about that? And, and what was it like for you to be witness to that? And what did you see in terms of the dads responding to each other as they struggled with that? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. That that came up in the in that first group. And it, it came up one night when one of the fathers was talking about his latest parental screw up. <laughs> and he had he had taken his his son and a daughter and his daughter to to a wedding, and it was maybe a year a year plus after his wife died, and he hadn't thought to buy his kids new dress clothes, and so he was they were getting dressed in the hotel here and go to the wedding, and his kid came out with his pants on, and they were like three inches above his ankle, and he couldn't even snap the waist, <laughs> and looked at his dad, and his dad's like, oh my gosh, I dropped the ball again. And it was that dad telling that story that was, uh, excuse me, that was Carl that told that story. And then Neil responded, another father, Neil responded to that by saying, I know exactly what you mean. I screw up all the time. There's no doubt. Obviously the wrong parent died. When my wife Deanna died, the wrong, as far as my kids sake is concerned, the wrong parent died. And when he said that, the, the, it kind of, stop the room's conversation for a moment. And Carl, the father who had not managed to get his kids appropriate clothing, pushed back on it and said, well, you know, that's not what I was saying. That actually was a little bit of a um, disagreement among the men's, which, which was very healthy and great within the group because these guys are cookie cutters. But what, what Neil was saying, the other father said they felt the same way was that this sense that they couldn't shake. And in some ways they didn't want to shake and they didn't want to be talked out of was that their wives were the, were the most central cog in their family's lives. They were the CEOs of the family. They're what made it, made the world revolve in their family. They're the ones who knew where, where the first aid kit was when their kids scraped their knees, they knew how to do the summer schedules, you know, before May when it was too late, they knew everything. And this, sense that a mom can't be replaced and that there's something about a mother's love and a mother's presence that these men felt like they could never quite measure up to no matter what. And not all the dads felt that way. I'd say somewhere around three or four of the seven did feel that way. And that night, and for a while there, these guys weren't looking to be talked out of it. It wasn't like, and it wasn't that they were throwing a pity party. It's really just, I think what they felt. And that, you know, when you think about it, that that really can can undermine and limit your or one's adaptation if you think that no matter what I do here, no matter how good I am, there's a real ceiling on how much good I can do for my kid in this instance, or how how much of a parental presence that I can that, that I can offer for my children. And over time, in fact, toward the end of this of this group's meeting together, we revisited that. Um, and Carl actually asked Neil again, he said, you remember a couple of years ago when you'd said this wrong parent died thing, do you still feel that way? And this was maybe three or four years out from losing his wife. And Neil said that he imagined that he would always feel that way to some degree, but that over time, the intensity of that feeling had lessened he was able to see ways that he was valuable for his kid. And that really kind of paralleled some of this growth that we saw that we see in all the men over time. But I, you know, I haven't asked Neil that question in however long it's been now years, but if I were to call him up right now and say, 
do you still feel that when your wife died, the wrong parent died? I would be surprised if he didn't still have a little bit of that sense. That's an extra burden to carry when you're already caring a lot. Yeah, it makes me think of, is there a way to hold hold both of those truths for himself of maybe that is true for him or his family and given the circumstances, now what? How do I move forward? How do I become the best wrong parent I can be? That's right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, two things can be true at once. My kids lost something that cannot be replaced. And I can do right by my kids. I don't think that that kind of, you know, more nuanced or nimble way of thinking is something that is easy to do in the in the fog of grief. Um, and I think that comes with time. And as far as what we see in the support groups comes with the encouragement and support and sometimes the disagreeing with other members of the group. What are some of the other common themes that have come up over the last 10 years uh, talking with these widowed dads? You, you know, we've kind of learned that most of what the men and the women come to the group and discuss and most of their struggles fit into one of a few different uh, very large buckets. That's either coping with their own grief of losing their wife or their husband or their partner. The other one is helping your child or your children cope with the loss of a parent. How do you do that? And then it's the day-to-day household management of being a single parent. And how do you do that? And then at some point, learning to move forward, whether it's dating or renegotiating relationships with in-laws, or do you move out of the house that that your wife had lived in, or when do you take down pictures if you start dating again, all those kind of things. But those first three buckets are all present on day one. Their own grief, helping shepherd their children through their children's grief, and then figuring out how to be a single parent. And for this, I always come back to the story of one of the fathers in our first group, Steve, who had three young, young children who were two, four, and six um, when their mother died. Their mother died in the middle of the night one night. It was expected um, in hospice. So Steve lost his wife, came home to tell his children, wait till they woke up and tell each of his three young children who could barely, especially the young one, could barely even grasp it, to tell them what had happened and begin to help them grieve. And then after about 10 minutes, he said, one of his kids said, Daddy, I'm hungry. Mm. And he had to go downstairs and make breakfast for him. And so within that span of that first three hours, he was grieving his wife's death. He was helping his children understand, comprehend, and begin to grieve their mother's loss. And he still had to be a father. And those three challenges were present on day one right away. And there's no way to truly prioritize those or to just kind of set aside those. And I think, I think some, for some of the men and women have tried to do that, but that's really hard because all those feel overwhelming in and of themselves, much less all three happening at once. And I think a lot of the men and women try and kind of push aside their own grief and try and deprioritize that um, and prioritize their, their kids and their family life 
Um, but you can only do that so much because when you lay down in bed at night, the other side of that bed is still empty and there's still a million reminders and there's still the chair at the dining room table that sits empty. That's part of what makes being a widowed parent a, a unique set of bereavement challenges. So listeners, if there was any remaining confusion as to why grief is so unbelievably exhausting, I think uh, Justin may have just shed some light on that when you're trying to attend to all three of those things simultaneously, when you're, you're not even really, you're still like, what just happened? And suddenly I've got these three roles I've got to be attending to. Yeah. And that, and the, the men will, will in some versions say that, that at the very time when they're mentally, physically exhausted, and depending on um, circumstances around the death, sometimes financially exhausted, at that very moment is when they are needed more than ever by their kids. That's a tough crossroads to be at. So after sitting with these dads for the last 10 years, what what's one or two things you think people in their lives uh, could benefit by knowing? Like, how's the best way for them to show up and support these dads? It's a good question. So... Of course, the the answer is it depends on the person, but that's not a very helpful answer for a podcast <laughs> or for anyone out there listening. Um, I, I I think to have an appreciation for, not to have appreciation, but at least to have an appreciation to know that you don't know what it's like to be 38 years old, widowed with kids at home, and that these parents do not consider themselves single parents they do not really gravitate toward the comparisons with parents who are divorced or separated i think some have found that uh, not insulting but a, a little bit i think uh, people miss the point when they feel like that's the situation because there is no weakened parent to share duties with there is no um, other person to weigh decisions it's all on your own and to just know that to be, you know, 38 or 45 or whatever, and to be, to lose your life partner is a real disruption in how most of us see our adult developmental trajectory unfolding. And that uh, they have planned to grow old with their loved one and have planned to share parenting responsibilities, was going to go to graduations together and become grandparents together. And they, you know, that was a life trajectory that they had for themselves. And that however their loved one dies, that trajectory has been snatched away. That takes a little while to come to terms with, and it takes even longer, I think, to reimagine a new trajectory. And we talk about this a lot in group that, you know, we all kind of have this idea of how life's gonna go. And then when something like this, that's a real just, seismic earthquake in our life and there's a real need to reimagine a new road and to reimagine a new future but that's hard that takes time and it takes some guts because to reimagine what you want your life to look like now just because you can reimagine it is no more guaranteed to come true than the one that you had snatched away from you before and so it takes a it takes a leap of faith i think to to plan again and to trust again. And when it comes to dating, to love again, you're, you don't have to understand all this. You don't have to pretend to understand all this, but I think just saying, I, 
I try to imagine what you're going through and I can only imagine that it's a lot. If you ever want to talk to someone, I'm here for you. And then make sure they know about our website because we got a lot of good resources on that website. And if you can take their kids to go get some ice cream sometime or to give them a little break, pretty sure mom or dad would appreciate that too. So the website that you just referenced, that's the widowedparent.org website? Yeah, widowedparent.org. And we, we have had that out for a little while, and it has a series of videos uh, featuring some of the men and the women who we've worked with. Our hope is that widowed moms and widowed dads can find that, watch some of the videos, and instead of getting just points and tips and, and suggestions from experts, they can hear from their peers. Uh, we have a list of resources. We certainly have the Dougie Center listed on there, you know, list of bereavement camps and really uh, have it divided up and how to support yourself and how to support your child. Great. Well, I will link to that website and then I'll also link listeners to uh, Justin's TED Talk and his book, The Group Seven Widowed Fathers Reimagine Life. So you'll be able to connect with him and the work that he's been doing. And just a quick word about the book. It's um, all the royalties or proceeds we get from that. Just we, we just give that straight back to our program. The, the men insisted that we use their real names and tell their real stories. And we said we would only do that if we if we didn't keep a penny from it. So that's that's the way that works. And what another uh, aspect of those specific dads that you wrote about finding a way to contribute, to give back, to find some meaning in the work that they were doing together. Absolutely. Well, Justin, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day-to-day to to talk with me and to share about this really powerful work that you've been doing. Well, I I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And especially, you know, as you you date stamp this in the beginning in uh, March 24th, when we're in the midst of the pandemic and and life feels a little scary and uncertain for a lot of us in, in different ways. And I appreciate you taking time to to record this podcast and to share it with your listeners. And, um, you know, like I said at the very beginning, I'm such a big fan of the, of the Dougie Center. Um, any way that we can reach your audience, we'll, we'll take it a heartbeat. Right. Well, thank you again. And listeners, thank you for being part of our community out there. I shared in our last episode that I have a new email. It's griefoutloud at Dougie.org. And a few of you have already emailed me there, which was really exciting. So please reach out. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. If there's someone you're thinking of as a guest or a topic we haven't covered that you really want to hear about, it just means a lot to know that you're out there listening and that the show is making a difference. So thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time.